Hello and welcome to the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. I'm your host, Ben Shank. You're listening to Mountain Meister. My guest today is Pete Ripmaster, who in February finished first place in the Iditarod Trail Invitational. You've probably heard of the Iditarod before, and you probably think it's bizarre to be dragged by a bunch of dogs in the sub-zero wilderness of Alaska. And, and up there in Alaska, you're thinking about it, there very well could be no one within 40, 50 miles of you sometimes. But the Iditarod that Pete competed in was a little different than the classic one with the dogs. He did the same course, except in the form of an ultra marathon. That's right, 1,000 miles on foot, negative 50 degree temperatures, and no dogs to help you along the way. A small thought before we begin Pete's interview. I've always thought that being the host of a podcast is a very unnatural way to communicate with people. Even though for you, the listener, it might seem perfectly normal to listen to somebody speak to you, almost like a bedtime story, it takes some getting used to being the host of that one-way conversation. I spend a lot of time in a room talking to nobody, but actually trying to talk to someone, like right now. And if I mess up, I have to do it all over again. Oftentimes, you don't get the validation that a person is listening. Like, you don't get the benefit of somebody maintaining eye contact or a simple head nod. And you also don't notice if somebody's attention is drifting. So where do I get the validation that people like what I'm putting down? We're now in the 207th episode of the podcast, and it's in its fifth year, so that's pretty cool. Mountain Meister also hit 1 million downloads, which is some sort of indication that people enjoy it. Also, getting a big guest is always exciting because it shows that if that person is willing to come onto your show, it's probably respectable. But there's one thing that really validates a podcast. It's a badge of honor, and it puts you in the same crowd as some of the heavy hitters, like the NPR and the WNYC folks. And that's having an underwear company as your sponsor. You'll hear about our newest sponsor in the middle of today's episode. Now time for Pete Ripmaster. Is it really Ripmaster? I know. I was thinking of the similarities between your name and my name. It's very, very, very close. Am I Ripmaster? Yeah, spot on. You know, people ask me to spell it, and then, you know, I'll spell it for them, and they'll say, oh, just how it sounds. I (laughs) said, yep, yep, exactly. And your real Uh, real last name. It is. Yeah, Yeah. it was was Rip Meester. Hmm. Uh, And then we came over, and it turned into Rip Master, and uh, and that's the story I've been told. Hmm. Um, I want to get straight to this race. Sure. How long has this race existed? Who started it? I think 1999 is when the race started. Okay. I, I, you know, I think, um, yeah, so it's been almost 20 years now and, uh, you know, it takes place a week before the dogs every year annually up there. And so do the dogs pass you? Yeah. We, yeah. The people that go the, the, the full thousand miles, we get passed by all the dog teams, right? You know, like maybe two thirds of the way through the race or halfway through which is super cool. And then it kind of, it becomes kind of tough too. And you got to kind of jump out of the way sometimes if it's tight quarters and things. So it's a, but it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Those mushers are fun too. So we have some good interactions with them and they kind of look on and pity, you know, when they, when they pass us. So uh, I'm running the Pittsburgh marathon this weekend and the way that they design the race is that 
the the marathon, the half marathon, and then the relay, which is of uh, four people doing about six miles. Uh, sure. They all start at the same time, right? So yeah. when you're in the marathon and you reach, say, mile 15, you have people who are in the third segment or the, who are doing the third part of the relay just starting fresh. Looking and, fresh is going to be right, totally, right. And, yeah. Uh, it kind of reminds me of uh, maybe you're, you're two-thirds of the way through this 1,000-mile race by foot, and then you see these people just trucking behind you, getting pulled by dogs. It's unfair, right? It is. I mean, it's it's literally we work for every inch we have. You know, there's just no help. And we're just passed all day by snow machines and dog teams, you know, right in the, right in the middle of. And, you know, a lot of people are like, you're an idiot. You know, like you what you know, with all the all the advancements in technology, what the hell are you all doing out here? You know, you get that question all the time. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I don't know how to answer it. <laughs> you know, sometimes I'm just. I, you just don't feel like explaining yourself, you know, um, <laughs> if I ever could on this race, you know, when, when did you first hear about it? So I, first of all, I had lived up in Alaska for a number of years in the early two thousands running sled dogs. So I had a dream all along that I wanted to finish the Iditarod fast forward a bunch of years when I became a runner and then ultra runner. And I had kind of gone through the paces of, of, of building up uh, uh, miles and, and races and whatnot. And then I was reading an article about Joe Grant in a, in a magazine maybe six years ago, six, who's, seven years ago. Joe and it was a, Sorry. Joe Grant's a, uh, uh, just a stellar ultra runner. Mm-hmm. Um, he lives out in Colorado and it's just a super well-known, uh, you know, in our little tribe, you know, our little segment, a sliver of, of the community. Um, you know, he's a... Uh, he wrote about it, you know, and, and he, he had gone up and done the 350 mile race. And so, uh, after I had already been up there wanting to do dogs, uh, it didn't work out. And so once I heard about this race that, you know, you can go on foot, it was just almost, almost reading, like you, you just realize within a second that it's what you have to do. It was like, it was, it was there for me. I just, it, everything about, what what it represents the race is to a T what I think of myself. I mean, I just, I, it, it resonated with me on so many levels. And what, I just what do you had, mean by that? Like everything that the race represents? Well, it's, um, it's a, it's a self-supported race. You, you really don't get any help. You know, you're, you're, um, you don't get any maps. There's no set route. Uh, you, you, you bring what you want to bring. There's no, you know, you don't have to have certain gear, um, if they invite you up to this race, they pretty much expect that you you have a certain uh, proficiency uh, out there, and so um, it's just you know it, it's wild. Uh, you have it's not just running. You have to be you have you have to have so many different skill sets to thrive out there, especially in the conditions that you face. So you have to be you know really good at managing your systems, which is you know your clothes and and your water and keeping your water from freezing and you know there's just little tricks of the trade and um, it's amazing. I mean it's just um, it, it you know as far as you know with all these races these days where you have you know you might have a hundred mile race but you might have 15 checkpoints you know so you're not going any four or five miles before you see and you know and and up there in Alaska you're thinking about it, there very well could be no one within 40, 50 miles of you sometimes, you know, and, uh, and that's just, it just, uh, throws a curveball. It, it, it raises the stakes for sure. So you're, uh, there are no, you're not stocking anything along the way you're carrying everything with you. 
Absolutely. The only thing we can send ahead is the uh, uh, some food drops, and that would be food and batteries, and that's it. So you know you can't you can't do clothes, you can't do anything else other than that. And I sent about twelve drops to communities that I was going through on the trail. Okay, so there there are some towns along the way. Yeah, uh, small native Alaskan huh. towns. Yeah. Wow, that must be neat. It's totally cool, you know, and each one's kind of got a different vibe and you meet different people and have different experiences and uh, it's wonderful. It's all part of the experience for sure. And do you you sleep at the town or do you uh, camp? Ideally, you want to get two places to sleep. I mean, obviously, it's uh, it's better to sleep inside when you have protection and you can dry your gear Mm -hmm. and you can, you know, you have a much better chance at getting good sleep inside. With that said... You know, so many times on the Iditarod, you know, it's just not feasible. You know, you're, you're sitting there thinking, I'm tired, I'm falling asleep on my feet, and there's still 32 miles to go till the checkpoint. And you just, you know in your mind, you know, it, it, it's not wise to even keep going at that point, moving super slow. So you just have to bivy, you know, so I have a sleeping bag and a, and a bivy sack and a, and a pad and all that, you know. And you can stay warm? Yeah, you know, I have a minus 40 uh, sleeping bag, and and then I can also go into that with a lot of clothes. But, you know, you can kind of wear, you know, you can kind of either make it a colder or, or, or warmer situation by what you wear into it, mm-hmm. you know. And so, you know, if you wear a bunch of layers and then go into a minus 40 and then put a bivy around you, you know, yeah, you, you definitely get cozy because it's so cold outside that anything feels like, you know, anything that's just cutting the wind. And, you know, inside of that down sleeping bag, boy, you get nice and toasty. It's just the, the, the problem is when you have to get back up. It's just miserable. I'm like, I'm now free to say that, that I'm done with it. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. uh, a couple more uh, numbers. So it took you 26 days, 13 hours, 44 minutes. You average yeah. 38 miles a day. And there were six other competitors in the 1,000 uh, mile division. Uh, right. do, you, do you stay with those six other competitors, especially at the beginning of the race? Usually, uh, I, I go into these races thinking that, you know, things are going to be different and I'm going to link up with people. And, you know, I just find it so hard. Well, to, to answer your question first, I mean, not much. I didn't link up with many people very often mm-hmm. because what you find out there is that, and, and it's just like anything else, like just on it, say you're going on a five mile training run with a person, you know, various shape or whatnot. Now, someone's going to be feeling good. They ate yeah. breakfast. They feel good. You, you know, they, they feel fresh. They got a little pop. The other person's going to be kind of lagging back and then f- feeling like they have to keep up. And I hate that feeling of having to keep up when I'm out there having my own experience. Yeah. So I'll go as long as I can with people, especially if, you know, if the personalities jive, you know. Um, And so I spent probably, you know, 75 miles, 100 miles with competitors and and probably 900 alone, I would say, ish. Yeah. There were two finishers. You were one of them. Who was the other person who finished? Uh, My friend Bayot from uh, from Boulder, Colorado, uh, finished. And he finished about a half a day behind me. And he was... uh, yeah, it was a, I don't know what the finisher rate is. Usually I can't, I can't think it's more than 50%, but two is definitely low. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, yeah, just two of us that got all the way. And, uh, Tim Hewitt, who, 
who is another person that I th- I, I'm totally intrigued by, and he's a friend of mine, but like just his mind and how he is, has put together a, a career in ultra running. Tim Hewitt was one of the six that started. Now, Tim has finished to Nome nine times on foot. Wow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, he is like the Elvis Presley of our sport, right? You know, like, I mean, he's just got this presence. And, you know, a couple of years ago in our race, he broke 20 days. He did sub wow. 20 days, a thousand miles. So he did uh, right around 50 miles a day. And he's a machine, you know, he's just like, he's about 60 years old, maybe 62, but just an absolute stud. And so he quit this year, like five, 600 miles into the race. And so I was probably, I was very content with being in second, you know, second, third. I, I really wasn't after chasing, like, you, you very quickly forget it's a race when it's a thousand miles, uh-huh. you know. Um, it's all about finishing. Yes, for yeah. me it was. It was such a personal thing. It had nothing to do really with it. That was like, you know, and you know well about tiered goals. That was definitely not one of the ones that was important to me. <laughs> um, uh, winning or second or, you know, podium or, you know, it's just foreign to that race. And so, uh, th- you know, Tim quitting. And he was almost a day ahead of me when he quit. So, I mean, he was going to just cruise on, you know, so that's why I tell people, yeah, I'm thankful and and thank you. I won and it's great and all that. But you have to give respect for, you know, things kind of just fell into place for me to win this year, you know, with the with due respect to the people that could probably be faster than me. In 2016, you attempted, was it the 350 mile version? No, that was was the, the Ben, that was the first year I was going for the. For okay. The thousand. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and I'm reading that you fell through the ice at one point. Mm, can you, yes. uh, can you tell me what happened here? Yeah, absolutely. I, I was by myself. Uh, I had gone over rainy pass, which is the part of the trail where you're going up into the Alaska range, which of course is where Denali is and, and all these big jagged peaks. And so you have to kind of find a way to go over and you go over this pass called Rainy Pass, and then you go down this Dazel Gorge, which is very dangerous. And then you get to this Tatina River, which is um, probably it's about three or four mile section of river. And I think anyone would tell you whether musher or on foot or snowmobile or any mode of transportation, it's probably the most dangerous spot on the whole route. You know, a thousand miles, this three mile, four mile section is probably the most dangerous. And so I was going into that alone and it was getting to be night. So it was evening. Um, It wasn't super cold, which ended up being a a huge help to me. But so I was going, um, I was about three and a half ish miles from the checkpoint. And, And the reason why it's dangerous is because um, this is an open, there's some very open water sections on this river. You see, you see ice and you see ice disappear and then you see running water. Mm. Now, some of it, you just, you have to put on, like a lot of people bring gators. Mm-hmm. I, I brought like little chats and you put them on and you step across and then you take them off and you keep going. So this is, and a, let me just uh, get yeah, a clear of vision. Course. So this is a, a partially frozen river yes okay. yes and you partially can, frozen and you can and you, uh, walk across certain parts of the ice and then at other parts you're not really sure if uh there's just water on top of the ice or if it's water. and it's yes and it's sketchy as can be you know it's just it's one of those feelings as an outdoorsman where you just 
are very uh, mindful that you're in a very dangerous place. You know, like stakes are high, things are moving around you, you know, water's moving, you know, so it's just um, uh, senses are heightened type area, right? And so I was there alone. Of course, I had promised myself that I, if I got to that exact situation and was a little sketched out, then I was going to just park it and wait for the person behind me. But, you know, that's one thing to think that you're going to do. And then another when you're you have no idea how close the person is behind you. But you do know you're three and a half miles from a checkpoint, you know, so you you're in go mode. And so I got to this one section where um, there's ice bridges. OK, so there's places where ice forms over an open river. And then snow goes on top of that ice and you simply walk across rivers. Right. And it's thick enough that you do that. Well, I saw one angle um, where the trail went straight and then it kind of emptied into some water. And like I would say like knee deep water, maybe thigh deep. But you could definitely see that most people went straight, went through the water, got on the other side and went and, and you know, rode away, hiked away. And so I was like, I, I was just, I didn't make the right decision. I should have stopped and kind of reassessed. But I, I looked right. I, I didn't see a better spot. I looked left and I decided to go left because I saw one set of tracks that went left and then linked back up on the other side. So, you know, uh, I went across. And so I, Ben, I have my, my trekking pole in front of me and I'm trying to beat in front of me as I go, you know, trying to make things fail in front of me so that I, you know, I know it's strong enough to walk across. And uh, about halfway, I mean, almost exactly over the, the middle of the river, I poked one time and it was just 100% failure. The whole ice bridge went out from underneath me. I went into water over my head. Oh my God. So, yeah, I mean, it was the, I mean, a very deep, probably one of the deepest parts of the whole river somehow. But I, I mean, I got one last, you know, g gasp of air and went under and felt like I was down there for a while. But, you know, the water's trying to move you one way and you're getting up the other. And so I kind of, Get surface. I'm still connected to my sled. So the I'm, sled's the sled's above the ice. The sled is kind of halfway in, halfway out at this point. Okay. And I'm in the middle of the the river, and you know, uh, panicked, and and you know, obviously that fight or flight thing. I mean, I had tons of adrenaline. But what happened was the next few times I tried to climb out, I tried to get across the river and get back up. Every time I put a decent amount of weight, that little bit would fracture. And all of a sudden, I'd kind of be back where I started in the middle. Mm -hmm. And so that happened two or three times before I was able to uh, wiggle my way and get enough leverage to get out of the river. And and uh, that was that was, you know, one of the scarier moments of my life and, and certainly could have been the end of my life. But it was uh, it, I got I got through it. How long were you under the water for or in that situation? <sighs> I couldn't have been, you know, five, five seconds, five, 10 seconds that I was down under. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it was one of those things where it was just slow. It was such a foreign place to be, mm -hmm. you know, like one second you're breathing, you're above water. Next, you're blowing bubbles underneath the water, you know, and just and so it was. Uh, yeah, it was a while. But, you know, you get out of that situation. You're like, OK, great. Well, I got out of it. Now I'm frozen. Right. Right. I was gonna uh, you know, what, yeah. What, what do you yeah. Do so. Uh, so in that situation, uh, your instincts tell you to do one of two things. They tell you to 
stop right then and there and make a huge fire, which is like, you know, just dump all your fuel onto a tree and light it on fire. Get warm, try and dry your gear kind of thing. Like if I were in the middle of nowhere, if I still had 40 miles, Mm -hmm. that would be the play. But knowing that I was, you know, about three miles from the checkpoint and shelter and people there, I just made the decision to keep moving, knowing that that was also another yeah. good friend of mine is, is movement and staying warm. So I probably ran the three fastest miles I've ever run on the Iditarod Trail to the <laughs> to the checkpoint and came in like a wet dog. And, and uh, that's, the, you know, there's the story. But it's, uh, you know, it was just. Gosh, talk about, you know, facing fears. And, and, and then I, I, I got back on the trail. Like, it was such a close call, but I felt like, okay, well, I, I got through it. You know, like, I'm okay. Like, nothing's hurt. So I went another 300 miles after that accident and got 500 miles into the race, and I was just like, I'm out. <laughs> I quit. Due to, uh, did it have anything to do with the accident? Or had you yeah, completely, I think, okay. I think it did, and I also think that I had underestimated just what a gigantic effort it was going to take to get a thousand miles. Okay. I think I had kind of been lulled into the like, oh, you've had some success in the 350, and this is kind of the next step, and you know, and just kind of, you know, just it is freaking brutal to to put yourself out there for that thousand miles, and so it's just a learning experience. How do you think about that? that experience of falling through the water and almost dying, uh, in your adventures now, does that ever come up? Yeah, Ben, personally, I'm, you know, I have a lot of spirituality myself, you know, and so I, I don't think of things down here as really at my plan so much. Like there's been, I could sit here and bore you with three or four other times in my life where it's been millimeters away or it's been, you know, you know, our friends have perished and I, you know, just so many, I've been, I've been in these mountains for a long time. I'm just amazed that, um, I'm, I'm unscathed, but I feel like I have a a wife and I have two little girls that I, I mean, I dearly love my family. And, you know, I, I, you know, no one's ever died on the Iditarod. No one has ever died. Like the, the whole sled dog race, the whole um, endurance, you know, human endurance. No one, and so, you know, gosh, it was like, you know, I tell you what, Ben, I'll tell you this. This would be good for you to know as far as this story goes. I'll tell you what haunts me sometimes about that whole experience is sometimes I think or I visualize what would have happened had I fallen through the ice and where I ended up in the water was below where the ice was to get out. Right. If that makes sense. Right. Yeah. And you're Stop. sitting there swimming right. for, you know, with against nothing to, yeah, against the current with nothing to, you know, with no ice axe, with no, you know, nothing that's going to get you up to ice. And so that would be, to me, that would be a really tough way to go because you would just know that you're going to be swept under and all these, all these thoughts would go through your mind and, you know, and you would probably be really emotional for a while while you're swimming and screaming. And, you know, I mean, it's just I've thought about that. And so um, I just think that things were in, in line for me to get through it. And as far as, you know, finding that line of adventure and going home, um, dang, man, I was like, that was not the point of this Iditarod. You know, these Iditarod races for me was to lay it all out there. It just was a fluky, you know, just 
waiting to happen type experience. You know, I mean, it was just something that I needed and it humbled me beyond belief, you know? Um, and so I kind of look back on it as a piece of the puzzle to get me to this year in a way. Um, and sorry, quickly though, 2017, uh, was, was there a weather event or something? Yeah. You know, uh, looking back on 2017, that was another opportunity that I had to go a thousand miles and that was the plan to go a thousand miles in 2017. And what happened was we dealt going over rainy pass. I told you that very dangerous uh, mm -hmm. spot. We dealt with minus 60 degrees on the trail. Um, uh, leading up to rainy pass. Now in, you're talking about knowing that you're going, you're in that weather and the next checkpoint isn't for, you know, 35 miles or something. And you're marching right into the North wind at minus 60. And, and I had friends get, you know, a lot of frostbite, uh, missing fingers, toes, uh, very, very, very dangerous conditions. But I'll tell you, I got through it. Okay. And, you know, only three people, I guess four people made it to McGrath, which was the 350 mile finish out of probably 20 that wow. were totally, I mean, so it was like just a few made it to even McGrath. But what happened was when I got to McGrath, I realized that no one was going to attempt to go on to Nome on foot. Mm. So if I would have gone on by myself, you know, you're talking 650 miles by yourself. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and I just kind of got lulled up into it. But looking back, like people that bike the trail, they went through the same weather we did and they biked to Nome and they had glorious weather, you know, all the way to Nome after dealing with that weather. So I quit, went home, and then you have to deal with the year you have to wait, mm -hmm. you know, to get back and to, and to, you know, try and have success. But I'm telling you, that's two years in a row that I quit. And, and I, for someone like me, uh, that is, and I, I literally looked at it kind of like baseball, like, all right, I'm either going to, you know, I'm either going to not finish or I'm going to knock it out of the park because uh -huh. I'm going to try again, you know, two strikes, man. More from my interview with Pete Ripmaster coming up in a bit. But first, I'm so excited to welcome Mountain Meister's newest sponsor. It's Saks Underwear. Saks first got started when they wondered, why can't men's underwear be better? I don't blame them. Honestly, before I started wearing Saks, I'd look down into my underwear drawer and wonder whether I wanted to indulge myself by wearing one of the two pairs that fit me now, or if I should save those for later in the week. You really shouldn't have to think that way. All of your underwear should fit you well, which is why you should try Saks. Not only is Saks underwear built with super soft and moisture wicking materials, they also fit the male anatomy. Saks underwear has the ballpark pouch. It's a 3D support system for your 3D body parts. It seems so simply obvious. And when you use it for the first time, it becomes even more obvious why they did it. Treat yourself. Get Saks underwear and get $5 off and free shipping with our partnership. Use the code MEISTER, M-E-I-S-T-E-R, at SaksUnderwear.com. That's S-A-X-X, -X, two X's, underwear.com. Use the code MEISTER at checkout. And thanks. I'm sure there are like a ton of times when you feel like quitting on this race, but Hell were, there any, yes. were there any in particular, <laughs> I guess this year where you like almost quit? You know, 
uh, you know, like the weird thing is, is that it didn't happen early very often. It, it happened late. It happened when I was like 800 miles into the race, you know, and you're just like, I cannot give any more. You know, you just like I remember that, you know, the Iditarod's not known for giant hills. It's not like ton of elevation. But I'll tell you what, there are so many like just little solid hills that, you know, even on a map look benign, but you look at them and you're at the bottom of them and you see the trail straight up and you just have to, you know, again, you know, you're going three miles an hour uphill, probably two miles an hour and you, you don't see the top. You just got to go. And so there's many times when I was just on the side of a mountain, chest over my trekking poles in front of me, bawling, crying. I mean, just like saying, this is all I got. I like, this is it. This is the end. This is where, you know, and, and just, and then, you know, something so freaking deep inside you just makes you take more steps. And, and so it was, um, I, I have to say I was working so hard at mindfulness and meditation and being in the moment. That was the only thing that really kept me together was thinking, you know, Nome was not my goal that day. That day was like a shelter cabin. You know, and just to wrap my head around a day was the only way I could I could think of getting there. Uh, I want to talk about something in the news recently. I'm not sure if you've heard of this. Mm -hmm. um, well, I guess I'll preface it by saying that it seems like the outdoors and uh, these experiences have had a pretty profound impact on you. Um, yes. And Penn State University recently uh, reviewed the 79 student organizations that get support from their campus recreation department. And they chose because of a proactive risk assessment to cut funding to the outing club, the scuba club and the caving club. And those were the only organizations that got cut funding. Have you heard of this? No, I hadn't. <laughs> how, how does that make you feel? It's like, it's like your regular education, you know, like these kids that are not, you know, having PE and art anymore. It's, it's similar. It's the spice of life. Like the diversity is incredible. I think talk about things that can really bring, uh, I mean, excitement to a life or direction to a life. There's three very awesome pursuits right there. And I'm a big fan of just getting outside. I don't really care what people do. You know, I don't, I'm not this one of these people that likes to title what I am much. I'm just an outdoorsman. I appreciate the outdoors. But to hear of programs cut like that and to see that level of education and, and um, it, it's, it's sad. It's, it's a sad state. I, I, just, I can't believe that I'm talking to you who, uh, who has done this 1,000-mile foot race in Alaska and then – there's another person who's made, or a group of people who've made the decision to uh, consider the outing club at Penn State too risky. Oh gosh, you know, it, yeah, you know, it's just sad, but that's it. They, we want to take, we want everything boxed up. You know, if there's any unknown about it, it's got no place in culture these days because the end's not in sight. You know, and that, and that's to me the the saddest thing is like. You know, people need to be faced with, shit, what do I do now, right? Like, oh, this was my plan. Well, nothing teaches that better than the outdoors, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, going out there, you know, how many of us have gone out with a plan and said, oh, this is going to be my day. 
And then, you know, you, you, you barely make it back to your truck and you're going, wow, I didn't expect X, Y, and Z to happen. Well, those things teach you about life. And, you know, I'm like, I've spent the majority of my life in the outdoors and some of my best education has been the outdoors. And I think it's the best classroom. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, too risky. It's because too many insurance people are involved in it now, you know, and, and it can't be top roped in the gym. I don't know, man. I, 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 yeah. I, I, won't, I won't get I won't I won't get going too much. But yeah, man, it's just a sign of the times. Um, let me get your gear recommendation. Uh, I, I saw do you do you own an outdoors shop? I, I owned a running shop for a few years. Oh, okay. And and uh, that was a cool experience. But like uh, me and retail was just not a match made in heaven. Okay. Like it, it kind of went downhill pretty quick. You know, I was just like, OK, I got to find something else. This is not going to work. Um, you know, so, being a pretty private person and kind of, you know, kind of reclusive, it was like an open door and just sitting there, you know, all day, every day. I just was like, oh, I got to get outside. It you're just, you're a runner. You're not a yeah, shop owner. <laughs> I was, that was it. You know, you think that you're going to get you, you're going to open this running shop and it's just going to be all these runners that come in and they're going <laughs> to be sweaty and they're going to be talking about which trail they want to run. And you're going to be all hyped up. The reality is, you know, it's this you know, this schlep that doesn't run, that's trying to get a deal on shoes. And, you know, I mean, it's just like, oh, this isn't what I signed up for, you know, like, and, and so many people on Zappos and stuff, you know, like competing. I'm like, no, this, this ain't, I, you know, here, here's how I knew I, it was time for me to move on from my shop. It was like one day I had this little bell on the door. So when someone came in the door, it would ring the bell yeah. a little bit. And I was sitting at my computer working on something and the door opens and the bell rings. And I remember, I remember just thinking, Oh gosh, like I was just like, <laughs> business, so annoyed. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, right. yeah so, like, so annoyed that someone was coming in my shop because I was busy, you know? And that like, right when I saw that reaction, I was like, I'm selling my shop. That's it. <laughs> That's the end of it today. You know? <laughs> Well, either way, between the retail and your own uh, expeditions, you're intimately familiar with gear, I'm sure. So maybe yes. uh, you could give us uh, one kind of fun piece of gear that we should know about. Yes, I would. I would say uh, my uh, Phoenix headlamps oh, okay. are probably are probably my go-to uh, for for gear that has just oh boy, just been there when you need it. Like you know, you're holding on and you're saying. I need this headlamp to get me another few hours so I can make it to dawn type thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, boy, those things to me, uh, they've been a game changer. And I like some of the other brands, you know, like I'm not going to say any of the other brands, but, you know, most most of the other brands that people think of right away when you think of headlamps, those a lot of those companies make awesome headlamps, but a lot of them just aren't tough enough for Alaska. You know, like the, the abuse that you put in those those Phoenix lamps are like they're a little bit heavier and they just got a little heft to them. Oh. And boy, they, they just last. I just I it's one piece of gear and I could probably say a few. But boy, I'm glad you didn't ask me what failed out there because I could make a long list. Oh, yeah, no, like. No, gear that's good. Yeah, I would say that's right at the top because it's just such an important piece of, of gear for me, you know, when you're, when you're up there uh, like I was. What, can you tell me a piece of gear that failed? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, the sled, uh, the oh. pieces, you know, the, the sled, the connections to the sled. Um, 
I would say um, people have had snowshoe issues, uh-huh. rivets um, breaking out, um, shoes. I just, it, it's still, I've been through this race for so many years now, and I still don't think there's a shoe that's right for this race. I mean, you just, you just blow out anything and it becomes saturated like a brick, you know? I mean, it's really difficult to uh, footwear. That's so I, so frustrating. Oh man, you know, and, and just realizing too that there's, you know, you're not going to be drying it anytime soon. You know, when it's when it's wet and cold, you know, it's just it's it's not good. And so, um, you know, the footwear and and your feet are a big thing on this race for sure. Taking care of your feet and being proactive. Um, but yeah, I would I would say uh, the, the headlamps are, are good. Trekking poles, another one. Um, I, I've never been fond of those, like those threefold ones, uh-huh. you know, the, like the super light ones that they make. Um, those have always failed me, like noodled on me in the most benign moments. Like you're just hiking along and all of a sudden it just loses stability and talk about a problem out there. You know, you, you know, you need those and those are a big part of, you know, hiking and trekking and everything. And, um, so, so I used, uh, lecky leaky poles. Yeah. It's more like ski poles almost, you know? And, and again, some of this stuff is heavier, but you're, you're willing to take a little bit heavier gear knowing it's going to hold up. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, good. I like that. Yeah. The Phoenix headlamps that'll go on your Meister profile page. There you um, go. I was, I, I see a picture of you, uh, with some like black stickers on your face. Uh, yes. I assume that 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 is to prevent frostbite. That wasn't from frostbite, like a band aid, or that's like the new cool thing to do in the Arctic realm. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's like it's uh, you know, really, it's for people that are going to the poles more or less. Uh-huh. You know, and you're and you're talking about covering your nose and your high cheekbones just for, to prevent, you know, just your nose is a beacon for light, you know, and, and also recently I was diagnosed with some skin cancer from being out in the mountains so much. And oh, no. so I had to get some cancer cut out of my arm and they saw a spot on my nose. And so I just, you know, I'm, I'm one of these people that's like, I was so cavalier about getting out in the mountains for so long and for so many just adventures where the sun's right on top of you and all of a sudden you know you you have this skin cancer and you're like shit i've got to start really taking care of myself and and being proactive so that was a way it was probably a little much because it wasn't super super cold um but you know you put it on and it stays for a few days and so yeah it just kind of helps to to know that you're not gonna um, end up with a frosted nose or a blackened nose you know that executive at Penn State is saying, "See, this is why we keep people inside, is so they don't get skin cancer." I exactly. I know. Uh, we need a controlled environment, uh, fu- fully. <laughs> Final question uh, for you, Pete. Is uh, I- I've been very impressed with uh, this conversation today, but I want to know who impresses you. So, uh, who would you like to hear next on this show? <sighs> I would like to hear, uh, I would like to hear David Johnston. That is, uh, that is my buddy, my compadre. He was, he was already winning these Alaska races when I was just reading about him. And I reached out to him before I had even come up to Alaska to pick his brain about how to do things. 
And if you research what he's done, and and not just up in Alaska, which is like a, a unbelievable chapter in itself, but what he's done at like six day events and week long events, and just really pushing it in a fun personality. I'm talking just laid back, fun Alaskan personality. Uh, I would say Dave Johnston. I like that. Yeah, I'll have to get Dave on the show. Um, that is Pete Ripmaster. Thank you so much for joining. That was, it was a ton of fun talking to you. Absolutely, Ben. I really appreciate it. Links to everything we discussed on today's episode on our website, mtnmeister.com, also in the show notes of today's episode. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Pete. Don't forget, we're giving you $5 off and free shipping with your first purchase from our newest sponsor, Sax Underwear. Go to saxunderwear.com. That's S-A-X-X, two X's. The link is also on our show notes. And use the code MEISTER at checkout for that deal, M-E-I-S-T-E-R. If you have any guest requests for upcoming episodes, send them along. My email is ben at mtnmeister.com. Always looking for new, interesting Meisters. Till next time, I hope you enjoy doing the rest of whatever you do when you listen to the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. I'm your host, Ben Shank. Thanks for listening to Mountain Meister. Mountain Meister.